I always tell people, you know, it's not, you're not going to take my job, but, and your job title might not change, but your job will grow. And it's, again, it's how you hire into. If you're a value, if you're value driven, you'll find those right people. Carrie, when she started, it was more just like, I want to say old school, pure marketing. And now it's turned into this, her job is now morphed into this digital, digital manager, millions of dollars of, of cash, you know, for our budgets. That's the beauty to me of small business. So it's not, you might not get the, the space in the front, but you get this very robust job and then, you know, your salary grows with that. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that will help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Acast, and probably any other podcast system where you download your podcast from. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, folks. Bela here, along with Mike. Today, we have a nice interview with Nicole Snow, who runs a company called Darn Good Yarns, and it's a wonderful story. And uh, we have some really wonderful topics that we talked with Nicole about. Particularly, I want you guys to pay attention to the notion of the way she has built a community around her business, which I think is really key and core to her success. Uh, Was there anything else that really struck out at you, Mike? Bela, I think this notion of trust is also worth talking about. And I think the concepts of trust and community are linked. And it's been something that she's really leveraged into a unique business model. And like you said, something that's really been successful. She relies a lot on subscriptions and she makes a lot of choices for the customers uh, and I think they trust her to do that. And so I think these ideas of built community, trust, and kind of a sustainable business model, sustainable in terms of long lasting, um, not so subject to competition or to changes in trends or tastes is something that's going to allow her to succeed in the long run. Yeah, I agree, Mike. Let's take a listen to Nicole's interview, and then we'll come back at the end of that to talk about this uh, notion of building trust and community in a little more detail. But first, we'd like to thank the David D. Ray School of Business at Clarkson University for supporting this, and uh, Mike over in the Munster School of Business at Munster University of Applied Sciences in Munster, Germany. Thank you for your support. And as always, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can reach us at bela.com and.mike at gmail.com. And please, if you like what you hear, leave us a favorable review on iTunes. And now let's get into the interview with Nicole. Hello, folks. Today, I'm here with Nicole Snow, who is the founder of a company called Darn Good Yarns. You might be asking yourself, what does Darn Good Yarns do? And we'll get to that in a second. But this is a great, great success story. So I thought I'd spend a little bit of time with Nicole, understanding her background, her inspiration for starting the business, and uh, how things are going. So welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me, Bela. Sure. So tell us a little bit about what Darn Good Yarns is and what it does. Yeah. So everyone thinks that we sell yarn uh, online. And while that's true, we actually have been able to uh, grow our e-commerce business. So we're a retail e-commerce business 
we sell a lot of clothing and apparel, and that actually accounts for 70%, more than 70% of our revenue currently. So Darn Yarn is broken up into, you can think about it, three different categories. We have our yarn that we're selling to uh, crafters, and we're serving a $44 billion industry there. We have a subscription Base model where we're serving about 13,000 users every single month who sign up for our yarn club. And then we have the clothing component of the business. Wow. How long have you been in business? We've been in business for just over 10 years. So that's a great description. And we'll get back to that later, but let's go back to the early years. So where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, central New Jersey. Like I'm a kid from the suburbs, so nothing too special going on there. My parents had a family business growing oh, so, up. So okay. there, is, uh, there is that entrepreneurial blood in, in my family. They had a medical equipment business way back in the day. I remember going on service calls with my dad and going to fix uh, wheelchairs in Mount Sinai in New York. Okay, yeah. so there is a, a history of entrepreneurship, business ownership within yeah. the family. Yeah, there is. Brothers, sisters? I have a younger sister. Okay. Yeah. And is she an entrepreneurial, does she have the entrepreneurial gene as well? No, I don't think so. She's uh, she's working in a high school and in middle school in Manhattan. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Any small businesses when you were young? Uh, did you? Well, so there's like, there's this funny thing. So when I grew up, my parents, they had their medical equipment business. Prior to that, though, it was a spinoff of my grandparents' business, which was also a medical equipment business out of Staten Island. And one of the things when they closed up shop and retired, I got this old cash register. Like this thing was hundreds of pounds. Mm-hmm. Well, at least to me, it was hundreds of pounds. So in my basement, my mom was awesome. She set up this craft area for me. So I got to craft and then I had my little cash register. So from an early age, I would sell my crafts to myself. And I think that was actually the basis of Darn Good Yarn. Being around my parents' business and then having that very weird playroom set up, that sort of sparked me to say, okay, how can I maybe start other business? Like it was it was just very natural for me. Um, when I was in college, I went to school at Clarkson. And I was one of the only freshmen at the time to have a car. I don't know what the parking situation is like there now. But as freshmen, you couldn't have a car unless you were in ROTC. So you can go downtown each week. So I wound up starting a small little business where I went to the local Walmart, which was at that time like 30, 40 minutes away. And I would bring back beta fish and little fish tanks. And I would let people customize their beta fish for their dorm rooms. And I made I made great money with that. Wow. <laughs> So that so so you clearly have this entrepreneurial gene mm-hmm. that's uh, turned on, and you you did it first in the basement selling, making things for yourself, and then, and then selling, selling them to yourself. Myself. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then there was a period of time. Remember, my kids had beta fish too. So there was this sort of beta yeah. fish craze for a little while. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I mean, like I've just always been a. I've always had a fish. Like had a fish tank in my life. Um, and people were like, hey, can you drive me to Messina and go get fish? And I'm like, you know what? I can. Why don't I bring them back to you? Because yes. I didn't want people in my car anyway. Sure. And I figured, you know, if I could sell 20, 30, 50, that's what I wound up doing. So I just would bring them around and that was my gig. And your major at Clarkson was? I was business. I think the technical is uh, business and technology management. Okay. That was a long one. But I graduated with honor. So that, yeah. that oh, works. Well, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. And then what happened after graduation? I went in active duty Air Force, so I went through ROTC. I got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and I was a contract officer. And what that was is uh, I was helping write the contracts between the Air Force and small businesses. So anything under $100,000 was what I was doing. So if it was mowing lawns or buying add-ons for rifles for uh, military police, that was what I was That was my specialty. So you got great expertise in reviewing and writing contracts. Yes, too much. That the acquisition rules, that was a very thick book. Right, right. Yeah. And you did that for how many years? I did that for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I got out early. Just personally, I realized that I had like some depression issues going on. My parents wound up getting divorced. So, you know, I think... Stuff happens. Stuff happens. Stuff happens. And I was, you know, you're in your early 20s. And um, I didn't have... I don't feel like I had the necessarily the best network in the military. I think being a woman and where I was in the military... There weren't a lot of other military. There was it was a lot of civilian jobs around what I did. I see. So the mentorship was very fragmented. There's a lot of other places in the military where the mentorship is very strong, but like my position sort of fell through the cracks. Um, so it's just not the best situation. So at that point, I think that one of the I don't know if it's an entrepreneurial trait, but one of the things that I feel 
helped me was I was able to say, okay, this was an area of concern in my life. So like depression, anxiety, you know, in your early twenties. And it's so common. Like as I, I was very open with it, even with like my own troops, I'm like, this is what I'm going through. And I think from like that point, like just being transparent, I don't know what made me do it, but I realized that that was such an empowering lesson to learn that even now, like with my team here, being transparent about whatever we're doing, if we're going to be making a move or whatever, having that keeps everyone on the same page. So you're not like, why, what's going on behind closed doors? And I think that's part of our success here. But going back to that saying, okay, I'm going to use this as a learning point um, to build myself up, to learn about who I am as an individual, what really makes me tick, and then use that to grow. So when I got out of the military, I got married. And like, you're still kind of wobbly. You know, that was, it was a, it was a profession change. It wasn't even a job change. I right. mean, like I went through four years of college. I had done junior ROTC prior to that in high school. So I was, I've been part of the military schema for do you have a history of the time. military service in your family? No, I mean my grand my grandfather's served for like minimal enlistment yes. time, but there's no um, professional uh, military folks. It, it was it, it it really rocked my world. So I got out of the military. I got married uh, to another Clarkson alum, and uh, he worked for Raytheon at the time, and they gave him the opportunity to travel. And I was like, right at the same time, I'm, I was sort of getting. I was like, oh, let me maybe start like a cool online hippie shop, you know, like mm-hmm. just go completely the other way of the military and um, sell Tibet prayer flags online. And it was those two things happening where his job took us and was moving us like every six months almost. Like as I sit here now, I've moved 15 times in my marriage and we've been married for 13 years. So we had a very high frequency of moves going on. Um, so I started this small little weird import business and I learned how to code my own website and that just sort of morphed into what Darn Good Yarn is now. In the beginning, it was more of a hodgepodge. Like, I didn't really have like my business chops going. Yes. And I'm like, let me just sort of import stuff that I like and see how it goes. And I made a couple sales and cool. And then as that grew, like I'd say over two years, I did some trade shows. And I did get like a little bit more educated. I saw this opportunity for the yarn. like, And it was it was still based off of something that I wanted to do, which was learn how to knit. Um, but I just used all these supply networks that I already had put in place. Right, right. So it wasn't wasn't like one day you're sitting down and you had this idea. I'm going to start this company called Darn Good Yarns. No, no. It was it was a, a little thing that that you started, mm-hmm. and as you went along, you learned and got smarter. Yes. Right, and yes. I think that's one of the one of the things that some people struggle with is is when when do you step off the curb and when do you actually start versus just thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, since it's mostly like entrepreneurs that are your listeners, for me, I joke about that first little two-year business as my Fisher-Price business. You know, you still have your training wheels on and, you know, you make mistakes and you do everything, you know, and it wasn't until I got to Darn Good Yarn and that started to grow. Then you go, okay, that whole idea of working on your business, not in your business and delegating things off. So, but I feel almost like you have to go through that. Like you have to learn a little bit of it so that when you're working with contractors, like how to do photography, so that at least you're having the correct conversations with those folks that you outsource to. Right. So that was morphed mm-hmm. into Darn Good Yards. Yes. So when did Darn Good Yards officially start? Uh, that was in April of 2008. Okay. Yeah. A great time in our economy. So 10 years. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> and at first, what were, you, what were the first things you were selling? So originally it was recycled silk yarn right from the start. I remember like one of my first imports were uh, it was 50 balls of yarn. And I'm like, well, if I don't sell it, I guess people are getting recycled silk scars that I knit for a long time after right. this. And then it, what happened, and it's a very unique situation, but when I went to reorder, the lead time like increased by a couple months. And I'm like, hey, what's going on here? And I'm talking to my suppliers and they said, you know, these women, they're hand spinning this, but that was during, they're working around their harvest season. So this is sort of a part-time gig. And then they're either... And they were, and I was just learning about the women actually creating the yarns. And I said, you know, I looked at a couple of other companies that were selling this online at the time. I think there maybe two or three others. And I'm like, their websites aren't that great. Like, I know that I can, I can do a better job telling their story and potentially create just sustainable employment doing this one thing year round. Because I'm like, these are moms. I mean, they're moms. They're they're wives. They're like if they're going through what I'm going through and I, cause I was working around and morphing around my husband's schedule, that's tough to do. Um, if I can try to maybe smooth that out for them, that, that could be really significant. Right. So let, let's talk a little bit more about your suppliers because yeah. you're not buying your stuff from large 
factories in China, right? So let's no. just uh, explain yeah. that a little bit more because I think that's a unique part of your story. Yeah. When I first started, I had you know maybe two or three suppliers and they're, they're small business owners in India and Nepal and they're working with and setting up co-ops in their local areas to teach women um, who are you know, really, I don't want to say forgotten about, but in terms of gender and caste discrimination that happened in these countries, they just don't have the same opportunities. And I'm not going and trying to rework anyone's culture. I'm trying to work within that framework to say these people are living on less than $2 a day. These are the people that are truly living in poverty um, and that don't have the social nets. Like we're very lucky in our country. We have a lot of, there's ways to be taken care of. In, in these places, it's not really there in the same way. So I found other business owners um, that shared the same tenants as I did, but they were in India and I was here. So we worked together to say, okay, how can we continue to grow these product lines and keep the quality good? And the thing that I think makes us very unique, and I, I don't think a lot of people realize about our business, is that we purposely purchase in smaller batches on a very frequent basis versus you know, one or two humongous orders every single year. Because that ensures not only great quality, but it also ensures fair, that, that our fair work conditions are maintained as well. So how do you how do you find your suppliers? It sounds like you have to get on an airplane and go to Nepal. We don't, actually. So originally, I was lucky. This first Fisher-Price business, I wound up, wasn't a partner. She was just growing her business at the same time. And she was um, Indian and was part of, uh, her family were um, manufacturers in Delhi. So I was able to I had a very unique insight into the wholesale world in India, just from someone with like no background whatsoever in it. Um, so I got a lot of my initial contacts there from her traveling, and I was able to piggyback on that. And then as we've moved forward, I do have buyers over there now that go in and vet any of our new suppliers as we've been as we've grown our product lines, because that's that's been one of our I don't want to say secret sauce, but that's really what we've done in the past year. So they go in. Um, we have Skype calls with them, uh, video conferencing, and then there's a whole questionnaire list that my ops manager put together that we make sure that our tenants are just being met and that we're on the same same uh, playing field. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fabulous. How many different products do you sell right now? How many SKUs do you have? Oh, boy. That's, that's a great question. Uh, I think we're around, because we have different colors, so in terms of SKUs, I, I say we're around 1,000. A thousand uh, units, like different SKUs right now. And and of those thousand different products, how many different suppliers is that? A little over 50. What's the average sort of customer order size? So to go back to the sort of three different pillars yes. of Darn Good Yarn, right? So we have our skirt customer. They're usually ordering five skirts because it's, it's one thing to like lump it all together and I can give you an AOV and it doesn't, it's, it's meaningless. So with that, um, with that set, that's around like $130 order generally. Um, and then for our yarn club, that's the 13,000 um, folks a month that are on that uh, plan that sells for $10 plus shipping every month. And then um, for our yarn itself, that's actually fluctuating. I think it's a little bit on an uptrend of around, they're getting usually one to two items, but they're kits, where in the past they were just getting onesie, twosie balls of yarn. And I think what we've done is a huge investment in the past six months to work with micro-influencers on Instagram and have them start to create patterns for us using our yarn to really show people how and showcase how to use the yarn exactly. Our yarns are atypical, like you're not going to find them in Walmart. So as someone who's been a traditional crafter and they're looking to step out and maybe step up their game a little bit, like it's a very common feedback when I would go to trade shows is, you know, this stuff is so beautiful. I have no idea what to do with it. Okay. But now using the micro influencer base and people who are crafting and designing their own patterns, they're happy to sell their design work to us so that we can share that with our audience. Oh, I see. So you said, uh, I'm not going to let this one get by yarn club, 13,000 people in a yarn club. Yes. So talk a little bit more about that. One of the things that makes Darn Yarn, I have to back up a, a little bit. So Darn Yarn, I think what makes us really unique is that we've created a, an environment where we allow failure. And um, in that we say like, let's just test things quickly and then we're going to patch it together along the way. So yarn club kind of started off, I don't want to say as a joke, but we said, all right, let's maybe see if we can do a $10 club. Very difficult to deal with, do anyway, just because it's $10. So what, what can you really get in a box for 10 bucks? And so the idea is $10 a month and 
once a month I get a package and it's a surprise. Yes. And so every month it's uh, you get a ball of our recycled silk yarn. And then you get a pattern. Um, it's a knit and crochet pattern. So it's actually two patterns. And then you get a little gift with it as well. So it's like a book of the month club. It is, yeah. And so you think for ten dollars though, like there's a lot of design work that has to go in there. So, you know, Carrie and I, who's my marketing manager, we, we said, okay, if we can get a hundred people on here, maybe that's proof of concept. Like I don't even think we use that sexy of language. We're like, let's just hope if we can get a hundred people on here. That would be cool. We could pay for at least someone's salary for a couple of weeks. And it just blossom like right in front of us because we've had we've had this yarn club for just under two years now because we started December 2016 so we were just able to scale and grow that uh, via Facebook and then um, our other residual like digital channels so all your business is you don't have a retail store no right it's all online it's I used to internet. but not anymore yeah. so does that make it easier for you for you to do these types of experiments yes right and test the market right Absolutely. so that's one of the great opportunities of of being in the online world yes. is is you can sort of do an experiment, see how it goes, yes. modify it, change it, and run from there. Almost instantly. And when I see even like other yarn stores, because we do a little bit of wholesale, I'm like, if you're not online, like it is, it's difficult to, and, and how do you capture that data coming into your store of what and why people are buying? Interestingly, though, when I first started selling online, I got a lot of pushback that people will never buy yarn online. Because people have to see it and feel well, it, it and feel touch it, it and, and smell it. Like every, the first thing people do is they always smell the yarn, which is, you know, it's just a yarn person thing, I guess. Um, I do the same thing, so I, I'm guilty. But, you know, you push through that. And I think one of the things that makes us so strong is that being a small business, we care so much about our customers. And in terms of the customer experience, that if they get something that they're not pleased with, we're very flexible. We're like, we're willing to hold your hand and make an exchange happen or, you know, work that all out so that it takes a lot of that fear away. And our reviews reflect that. I mean, we have thousands and thousands of five-star reviews um, and a lot of them are based on the awesome customer service we provide. Yeah. I think one of the things that sometimes people miss in business is if, if you're selling a six pack of Pepsi, everybody knows what that is and they're willing to buy it from anybody. Mm hmm Whereas you're selling things that are very sort of personal, right? Like you said, yes. people want to touch it. They want to feel it because they're going to make something out of it yes. or they're going to wear it. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very personal to them. And so selling that online, I think, puts you in a different emotional category it does. than selling Pepsi or Coke. Right. And, and so you have to make sure you address those concerns of your customers in a thoughtful way that builds their trust. Yes. And I would tell you that, you know, in the world of outsourcing and, you know, that's, that's like the word du jour, you know, you can't like really listen to an entrepreneurial podcast without hearing outsourcing. I think one of the things that made us special, like people say 10 years, the first five of those years, I was doing everything at the company. So in terms of customer service, I was hearing firsthand what those concerns were or why people were making things and, and you're exactly right. How precious those items that they're making are that carry through. And so that we have respect every time that yarn order goes out, especially, I mean, all of our orders get a lot of respect, but there's a huge value add when someone gets our yarn and they're going to sit there for a few hours now and make something for someone else. Um, we have to have a, a high level of respect for that process that, you know, the hours that they're putting into it, that that's important to us right, that they have a good right. experience. How many employees do you have? Oh, right now. Are we at 12? Approximately. Yeah, I think we're at 12 right now. Okay. We just we just had a, a nice little round of hiring here in the last few weeks. So we've brought on four new people. Okay. Yeah. And is is this a seasonal business? Originally, it was a seasonal business. So if people aren't really knitting in the, uh, except for the hardcore hardcore folks, they're, they're not knitting in the summer. We brought on the skirts. I brought on the skirts originally to help smooth out our sales. And that wound up just being its own very robust part of the business, luckily. So yeah, there's there is some cycle with uh, with the yarn itself, but mm -hmm. we've brought on other product complementary product lines to help smooth that out, and then be that go to brand for people who just want to be creative. So if they're not knitting right now, because I like I, and I and I just always try to put myself in the customer's shoes. If you're a busy mom, like you're not, it's not always the time and season to sit down and knit. So what are some other ways that we can infuse our values um, into other product lines and bring that on board for them? Because we've now be, we've established trust with our customers. Right, right. And so do you have customers that buy all three of your product lines? 
Yes, we do. We do. Right. So that's a, actually probably a great way you develop trust in one and then you can branch them in, into another. Yeah, we, you know, it, I think like in the business world, you know, that funnel idea, everything's a funnel. I, I've always gone like, I just, I don't like that. It, it, it feels like a little dirty to me. Um, like, oh, pushing a customer through a funnel. Like, I don't know. It just, it, I didn't like it. And, and it was it's sort of been pushing around in my head. And I'm like, one day I'm like, you know what? It's just the customer journey. Like this is their experience because they're maybe doing back to school right now. And then what's happening, you know, maybe in February is different. And I, we have to, we're nimble enough as a small business to serve this customer and take them on this journey. The idea is that we want them to feel awesome when they're wearing one of our skirts or knitting or knitting with our yarn and then linking them back to our, our value-based supply chain. How do we just sort of lead them on that? That's why they're coming to us. And once we start to think about the customer journey, it was like, okay, this is cool. Now we're like a tour guide. Now we're, we're just the conduit for this person to have this experience. Right. And how do you do your fulfillment? Fulfillment. Yeah, our fulfillment is done in-house right now. So we just moved into an awesome warehouse in central New York and where everything everything is in-house, with the exception of um, part of our subscription boxes. So we are contracted with Albany ARC, and they help um, give jobs to adult adults with developmental disabilities. And uh, they've been awesome for us in terms of just assembling our boxes, getting them out in a really quick timeline. And any business owners out there that like aren't familiar with ARC agencies, they're like they're almost everywhere, and it's just a matter of because they don't have huge marketing budgets to reach out to small business owners. Yes. You have to sort of find them on your own. But in terms of what it's been able, what we've been able to do with our business, I wouldn't have been able to scale my subscription boxes without them. In terms of assembly, like the capital that I would have needed to just hire my own employees versus the pay structure that we were able to work out just made that possible and being able to be self-funded, yes. that, that was important to us. And that's the subscription service that you have, 13,000? Yes. So they're shipping 13,000 packages a month? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And we have plans right now to launch, well, we've already launched them. We've done soft launches on four other subscription boxes, a fabric, a bead. Um, we're going to be doing a kid's craft one and then sort of an add-on to um, a sewing with the fabric and scaling those in the same way. So we figure if we can just get another four in, it's going to round us out and, and create right, a very right. sustainable business. So have you had any duds? Um, yeah, we have actually. I I think in the, this conquest for this lifestyle brand, you know, you, you sort of lose track of why you're in business. And we've had some product lines that we brought on just because we're like, oh, we, you know, who wouldn't want a coffee cup or things like that? Yes. And then it was like originally a head scratch, like, oh, why isn't this selling? But then we realized we're the conduit to have these people go on this journey that's linked back to our supply chain. We lost track of that. It was a squirrel and we're like, okay, let's go chase that squirrel. So you come back and I I, I can tell you every time we chase that squirrel, that product never works for yes. us. So yes. it's just coming back, coming back to what makes us special. So how do you think about hiring people, right? One of the challenges you start a business is just you. Yeah. So it's you in the basement, right? <laughs> yes. And you're doing everything. And then at some point in time, you run out of cycles. And you guys, I have to go find someone to help yeah. me and join me. How do you think about that process? How do you find that special person? Like when I first did it, my first hire was a customer of mine, actually. She was a wholesale client um, just looking for part-time work. So she worked as a virtual assistant for me. And that served a, a great purpose. I, she was really into the brand. And you know, as we grew, you know, you know, things just don't work out. You move on to the next place. What I can tell you in terms of my lessons learned that I've found that at least in the digital space and e-commerce space, things do tend to move pretty quickly. The attitude and nimbleness of a person just mentally is more valuable to me than what's actually on their, on their resume. That I can have someone who has an amazing resume, but if they're slow to move and don't like change and they're not entrepreneurial, they're not going to work here. And that's one thing I always say in my interviews, people who thrive here in this environment are entrepreneurial. We've set up the business, you know, we have profit share, we have pension plan. You know, I've tried to create an environment that allows people to almost be like a mini business owner within our ecosystem at Darn Good Yarn. Do you have a particular process you go through for hiring people? 
So my new upgraded Darn Good Yarn process, we just hired a um, an HR consultant uh, agency, which I wish I did this years ago. Um, I was doing it all on my own. So I, was, I would go on Indeed or even Craigslist in some cases um, to go find applicants. And I was vetting them all myself. And it was it was such it was a time suck for me. I wound up hiring on an HR company. I mean, they've gotten us into compliance because we start to get larger. You know, you yeah, you better have your employee handbook. And it, you know, yes, there are, there are agencies out there that will just give you a boilerplate. That's fine. And it only works if you use it. For us, we're so culture driven and where we've had misfires in terms of, you know, bad hires and it costs us so much money. It's not just losing. It's the training that goes into it. And once I start to really see the true cost, not only on not the bottom line, but even just how many times I have to ask my management to retrain someone, they have their own things to do. Right. And when I start to see that picture, I'm like, oh, man, we have to stop this right now and hiring on this this agency and then helping they understood that culture was so important so they helped me hire and interview people in a way that was more values based than we ever have been right it's one thing to say like oh tell me about yourself it's another thing to say like when have you when was let tell me about a time you use integrity um in, or in your integrity show in your like last job position yes yeah. yes and it, it's not just the time and money but it's also the emotional cost yes. of doing those things. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's so draining. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, I feel like it's a divorce every time, you know, cause we put so much love and sure. work into people. It's, it's sad. Yeah. yeah. But when it works, it's great. When it works, it's great. And I, right? we have an amazing, we have some amazing folks here now. Yeah. <laughs> so have you raised any outside capital? No, nope. Uh, we are it's all organic, all organic. I Excellent. mean, I've used a, a few uh, PayPal working capital loans, you know, yes. here and there for inventory purchases, which has been it's been a good fit for us but everything's been in-house how do you think about mentoring both as being a mentor and have you had people who who mentored you you sort we talked about that a little bit of, of your mm -hmm. military experience right. where you were in, in an environment where it just wasn't conducive to that so how do you think about that so right now if we don't have a formal mentorship program yes. i feel that one of the best things that happened to me was getting pregnant and having my, my baby a couple of years ago. And um, I thought that was going to be like the worst thing that could ever happen. I, I like I looked at um, it might be negative, but I, I always looked at when like women had a child and now they're like stretched between sort of this business world and then their they're family torn, world. Right? They are torn. Right. Um, but for me, it was, Nicole, you need to learn to like only do the important stuff because it's really all you have time to do if you want to still be at home with your your kid and not work 100 hours a week, which is like sort of the magic number I think every entrepreneur goes to. In terms of mentorship then, I was able to see where there were learning gaps for the people that had to backfill those jobs mm -hmm. for me. So um, a really good example right now, Carrie and Amanda, who are my two and three, and I don't tell them which one is two and which one is three. I keep them I keep them at bay with that. But in realizing that I need more time to work on, we're, we're doing a spinoff business with the skirts, in order for me to have that time, they need to step up and help me with more of the strategic thinking and more of the long-term planning. Um, generally, it's just sort of come from me and then I sort of push it down. I think for us to move to the next place, they need to be part of that, that yes. be sitting at that table with me. So I've hired a consultant and we actually do one-on-one -on -one training with them on a weekly basis um, where we talk about how to just really start to develop that muscle. So for me, that's how our mentorship works. And, and I, I think that's been, it's been a beautiful process. I mean, Amanda, for example, she's been with me for four years. She started in her early twenties. Really, it was her first, we joke about her big girl job. She started with me with a PR background, but again, that attitude, and she was uh, part-time just slinging boxes. And she's now just morphed into this operations manager that deals with like inbound exports, yes. you know, and it's, it's, it's through that just process of saying, okay, I'm going to give you the freedom to learn. It's okay to fail. Like it's, it's okay. And you'll learn from that when we right, to the next right. place. And that also kind of gives people growth opportunities within a small business. Because one of the things yes. people worry about is if I join this small organization, do I have any growth opportunities? Right. I always tell people, you know, it's not, you're not going to take my job, but, and your job title might not change, but your job will grow. And it's, again, it's how you hire into. If you're a value, if you're value driven, you'll find those right people. Carrie, when she started, it was more just like, I want to say old school, pure marketing. And now it's turned into this, her job is now morphed into this digital, digital manager, yes. millions of dollars of, of cash 
you know, for our budgets. That's the beauty to me of small business. So it's not, you might not get the, the space in the front, but you get this very robust job and then, you know, your salary grows with that. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly you have a, a culture here that's really important. It, mm-hmm. It's, it's, and the culture extends beyond the four walls of the business. It actually extends and it's part of your brand. It's part of your customer relationship, right? That, that culture permeates everything. As keeper of the culture, how do you sort of manage that? How do you make sure that it lives on in a way that grows? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I Going back to the transparency, like learning from that early, like in my early 20s, having that hiccup in my life and just being transparent with everyone around me. That's how we that's how we do it here. So, you know, we had um, a pretty big business decision with uh, how we we're going to handle our logistics for the holidays and just really bringing the whole group in the office and not doing things behind closed doors down to our warehouse staff saying this is what we're kind of thinking about. This is why we're thinking about it. So we're educating while we do that as well. Again, trying to make people step up to the next place. You know, I don't want to just hire someone for one job. I want to see that. I want to see how we can figure out what their strengths are and build into that. So I think just bringing people into the room and having having the weekly stand-up meetings and talking about what's going on and, you know, the state of the union, that to me is, it sounds really simple, but that I think that's what's helped us. Right, right. So as the business grows, you know, that that becomes more and more of a challenge. I, I, I remember a couple of the companies that I started you know, on the first day, there's four of us and mm-hmm. we all had lunch together. So everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. And then sometimes when we got to about 10 or 12 people, all of a sudden we all didn't have lunch together anymore. Right. And people didn't know what was going on. And then you have to start thinking about other ways of communicating. Have you reached that point yet? Or are you? Or is that how do you think about that? You know, I, I don't think we've reached that point quite yet. I do think that environment itself, like the four walls that we're in now are very important. I know that we moved from a warehouse that was windowless and we got in, got our work done, but it wasn't that great. I I think just even the environment that you come into work in, is it clean? Is it fun? You know, what's even up on the walls? What kind of music are you listening to? That all plays into um, how people just enter into the workplace. And I think we've done a fairly good job communicating that this is your home too, even though you're not paying a mortgage here you know, having respect and, and it goes down to your hiring as well. Like those people will share those values um, too. Do you have like a regularly scheduled sit down? Everyone gets together? Yes. Once a week on Fridays. Once a week on Fridays. Yeah. And that's like an open forum. It is. Yeah. So we have a couple of, um, you know, key topics. We have Safety Steve, who's my husband. <laughs> he, his name is Mike. He comes in as Safety Steve with a wig on sometimes, and he does a safety briefings because yes. those can be a little bit dry. So we try to, you know, have a little bit of fun with it. And then um, we go through just sort of, you know, some top level, this is what's going on behind closed doors. Because I don't want it to be like a warehouse staff versus like what's marketing and, you know, what's the management team doing, like bringing everyone together. Because I've had so many ideas come off of my warehouse floor saying, hey, you know, we're doing this with the skirts, you know, maybe we can do it this way. That's the environment that I want because then we're all thinking about the same problems. Yes. What advice would you give others that are contemplating, you know, starting their own business? For me, money has always been this sort of underlying, you know, I think for most people, right? Yeah, I, I didn't have I didn't have a lot of money. Like, I don't say I didn't have a lot of money growing up, but it was always like, it was a known resource if you didn't have it, right? And saying, okay, I'm going to set off on my own and have my own business. I wanted to make sure I was financially secure mm-hmm. to a place where, you know, we saved up a decent nest egg if I had a pull from it. Because it just it just made me feel like I wasn't operating with a gun behind my head. My husband also had a really great job as well. So I was able to be a little bit more experimental. And I think that was very important. Um, if I was, if I had zero dollars in the bank and I started Darker Yarn, it wouldn't be a success um, the way it is today. Just because... It, fear-based sort of operation in terms of making decisions for your business. If you don't have the cash, it's one thing to be scrappy. Don't get me wrong, but you can say, okay, we're going to actually do a substantial test on this marketing. And you have to put, you have, you can't, you can't just put $5 into a boosted post. Like we're talking maybe $10,000 or something like that to know that you have that basis. Yes. That, that to me was important and it helped me make, I think, better decisions. So I think anyone who's thinking, who's on the verge of that, you know, know that for the first four years of my business, I worked two part-time jobs um, to make sure I had 
my own cash coming in and then I worked hard at night and I, I just lay out the budget like best case scenario but you know really plan for the worst case and I love the idea of being scrappy and people who have succeeded at this company are just as scrappy as me like we're sitting in my office right now I'm sitting on a couch that I stole from my living room um, my my table here has you know crayon drawings for my kid on it you know it's, it's scrappier the better because then you can make really anything better. yes yes so I think that's good advice because uh, in my venture capital days, we often debated what's the right amount of money to invest in a company, mm -hmm. right? So you'd see these companies that on day one would, would raise $20 million. Wow. And all of a sudden, they have $20 million in the bank, and you can see that they're not scrappy because they feel that they have lots of runway. Yeah. And so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is zero dollars. Right. Right. So someplace in that continuum is the right spot. Yeah. And and so your point of ha having enough runway to be able to try things and learn because it's not going to go great every time right. is really really good point. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I also I worked with and just to add on to that I worked with a financial planner as well that was really very trusted. I mean, I'm still with her to this day, but they have tools that I don't even realize in terms of budgeting and projections to say like, okay, like we're on track or I need to be putting more money in investments because one of my aces in the pocket is that I have my own line of credit for the business. And that's like our, you know, if anything really, really went wrong or sales did go soft for a couple yes. months, which could happen, a Facebook algorithm could, could change things and like, okay, you, you want to make sure you have that. So from we did that on purpose so that I can be my own bank and I'm yes. not giving up equity in the in the company. So I don't think I'm that sophisticated to have figured that out on my own. So, you know, you hire the professionals yeah. when you need them. Yeah. yeah, excellent. So before we wrap this up, are, are there any other points that you'd like to make or questions I should have asked you that I didn't? You know, I, I think that as a business owner and entrepreneur, I, I think it's important to always turn over every stone. We get bombarded with a lot of like, proposals for, you know, for other businesses, not in terms of starting other businesses, but just other services like software as a service that are, are shown to us. And I think in the early days, I thought I was too busy to listen to them. I take almost every demo now and we schedule it in and figure that out. For me, it's a matter of making sure that we're turning over every stone possible. And even if you wind up not going with a solution that's being presented to you, there's such good opportunities to get educated, say, okay, these people are thinking about this potential problem this way. Like, is there an application in my business or should I actually be thinking about this problem mm. in the same way? A great example back in the day, I didn't really even know what retargeting was. And now it's so much a part of the digital marketing schema. I remember, you know, listening, I think we were on uh, Credio at the time. I think that was the, and that's who we're with now, but going through and not really understanding and just not being afraid to ask stupid questions when you're on the call and figuring out how the technology works and then saying, okay, I think this is how we could potentially use this. And then learning and, and having that sort of worked into your, your infrastructure, you never know sometimes what, what can really make a big right. difference in your business. Right. Well, that's great advice. That's great advice because I, as you were saying that, I think lots of times in my past I have, sorry, not interested, sorry, not interested when the phone rings, right? Yeah. And as opposed to saying, I might actually be able to learn something from this engagement right. that will either help my business or maybe find me a new customer or whatever. So that's yeah. great advice. Thank you very much. So Nicole, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you Sit so much. Sit down with me this and uh, tell us about your wonderful business. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, Bela, that was a really interesting interview with a really interesting person. What was the key takeaways from this interview in your mind? So, the one place I'd like to start is sort of early in her career where Nicole, I should say early in her college career, actually, where Nicole talked about she was the only one that had a car up at college. This is back when beta fish were sort of a big thing going on. And so a bunch of her friends wanted her to drive her to the store to go get some betta fish because all the college kids had betta fish for pets in their in their dorm rooms. And Nicole quickly recognized the opportunity that instead of driving all her friends to do that, she went, went bought the betta fish, brought them back to the dorm, and then sold them to her friends. So I think this notion of sort of recognizing an opportunity uh, and then being able to act on it was one of the key takeaways that I got. Agreed. 
How do you think her military service and her experience as a veteran influenced her development as an entrepreneur, Bela? Yeah, this was another one, uh, right? So she she uh, was part of uh, ROTC in college. And so upon graduation, she went into the Army. What she did in the Army was this uh, contracting and sourcing element. So she got really good at writing contracts. And she said, you know, it wasn't writing contracts service contracts with General Electric, but a lot of these smaller sort of companies that provide various different goods and services to the army. So she got really good at sourcing things. She got really good at writing these contracts. And then if you think about her business, right, darn good yarns, all of her suppliers are basically cottage industries. So she's not buying goods from some large factory in China. She's buying her her materials and her products from small little cottage industries, many of them made by individuals in their homes. And then she kind of aggregates that stuff together. So I thought this notion of her army experience really gave her a good skills and insight on sourcing and contract negotiations, which has really been one of the foundational elements of Darn Good Yarns. Agreed. This notion of aggregation as a business model is really cool because not only is she helping her and her own family out, she's also helping all these small entrepreneurs enable their livelihoods as well, because these small mom and pop operators are oftentimes overlooked when it comes to the ability to open themselves up to new markets and to kind of build a, a sustainable business on their own. So it's really this two levels of success that she's having, enabling her own success and the success of other entrepreneurs. So yeah, great story. Yeah. And this, uh, this notion of the cottage industry and supporting it is also key in how she has built her community around her business. In other words, that's part of the reason why people like to buy products from Darn Good Yarns is because they know they're supporting individuals who are in often in you know impoverished situations, uh, and you're supporting their livelihood. So you're you're not you're not buying this product from some large factory run by a owned and run by a billionaire, but you're actually buying these products that are sourced by various different individuals in in very poor parts of the world that are making these products. And and that's part of the identity that she has built around her business. Yeah, I love it. This concept of identity is linked to this built community that you talked about in the open and this idea of trust that I think we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. So she has built this devoted community of customers around her business. And, you know, it, it, I, it, that light for me went on when two things happened when I was walking around her warehouse. I saw this big, big bin full of various different scarves of all different colors. And they're all different because each one is fundamentally handmade and it's unique. These are, these are not printed on a, on a you know, printing press. And so I asked Nicole, I says, how, how, how does someone pick one, order one of these online? I mean, uh, how do I look at the color and the pattern and decide which one I want? You have to take pictures of all these things? And she goes, oh, no, no, no. We just basically say, tell us the sort of one or two colors you want in it, and we pick it for you. So in other words, when you get online, you say, I want something with some you know, bold greens in it, or I want something with earth tones. And then when we fill that order, we'll pick out one that has earth tones in it and we'll send you. So number one, in order for a customer to buy something like that, you have to have this trust. You really need to trust that, you know, you're going to get something that you want. You have to sort of believe in what's going on. And then I think the other unique part of it is there's this little surprise, right? There's this anticipation. It's like getting a present for for the holidays or your birthday. It's like, you, what is it? What is it? I, I know the person that gave me this you know, understands my taste and, and I really like them. So it's going to be a wonderful surprise. So I think that's another key thing that she's been able to build in her business, which is which is really unique. Yeah. And I think this is something that listeners who might be interested in starting a business could look at. I think there's lots of other product lines and kind of industry sub areas that would be open to a business model like this. And again, I think a lot of this is Nicole's interpersonal skills that allows her to pull this off and her experience as we were discussing. But I think this is things that that people without a ton of business experience could could look at and and do anything where you can handcraft or homecraft something um, or even small manufacturing businesses and aggregate things that are unique 
together, build trust, build a community, build a two-way conversation, and then and then go for a subscription model, I think is a is something that's that's replicable. Yeah, and this notion of community and trust, Nicole has successfully built not just only with her customers, but also with the individuals who work at Darn Good Yarns. When I walked around there, it was it was very clear. It didn't feel like I was walking around a business. It felt like I was walking around someone's house. People were interacting like much more so like they're a big family. You know, sort of the decor was much more, you know, home-like and house-like. There was a couple dogs and it, it just it just sort of was in really stark contrast to some other organizations that I've, you know, seen in my career that are very, very sort of business-like. And so this notion of this community and trust permeates not just her customers, but also with her employees. And she was telling me this story about, I think this was off the mic. She was telling me this story about, well, her business to some extent is fairly seasonal. And so there have these big pushes, you know, during the holidays. And she said, there's never a problem with people coming in to work on weekends and everyone's out in the, in the warehouse packing boxes and making sure stuff gets shipped out. So this notion of trust community is not important just for your customers, but also can be very important to the core foundation of your business and your employees and your abilities to be successful in that business. Neat. And, you know, don't forget the suppliers and all this, too. So now we have this uh, element of trust. She's helping these small suppliers and building trust. She's has trust within her own organization with her own employees. And then she's built this trust with her customers. So now we have these three different levels of the organization. And pretty much all the key stakeholders are bound with this trust that, that she's developed. So it's I think this is a cool, a cool takeaway for for listeners. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's uh, of all the businesses that I've seen in, in my career, uh, there, there, this is this represents a very small percentage of people who've been able to do this and make it a core element of their business. And I will say that I reflect back on the ones that I've come across in my life. They've all been very successful. Great. Any last thoughts? I think that covers the the real important stuff that I was sort of thinking about when when I was uh, re-listening to the interview with her and getting ready to uh, put down these comments. So I think we hit all the big points, Mike. How about you? Yeah, I'm great. Let's call it a wrap. All right. Excellent. Again, we'd like to thank uh, Clarkson University and uh, Munster University for their support. If you like what you hear, please give us a favorable review at uh, iTunes. We're, we're looking to build our listenership, and that's the best way to do it. And again, if you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. So until our next episode, see you later.